why did I stop eating meat? It wasn't anything to do with the taste or texture of meat. I was fine with the taste or texture of it. I just didn't like, you know, all the other things that went along with it. The horrible environmental footprint. You do look at the health aspects of eating meat. You look at the compassionate way that animals should be treated. Is rarely, you know, about the taste and the texture of meat. Taste and the texture now of all the vegan products has grown so much. It's a lot easier now for people that have been eating animal-based meats for so long to go the plant-based way on meat. You know, we say taste is king, price is queen, everything else is marketing. It's got to taste great. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we meet Seth Tibbet. He's the chairman and founder of family-owned Tofurky Company and its parent firm, Turtle Island Foods, which he started in 1980. Seth developed the second biggest tempeh company in the US until he started making the famous Tofurky Roasts in 1995. Seth is also super passionate about his role as US ambassador for Veganery, which after having huge success in the UK, has recently launched in the USA. Seth went vegetarian in 1974 for the environment. Today, his veganism stems from a concern for the environment, animals, and overall health. More recently, Seth has released a book, In Search of the Wild Tofurky, which chronicles his experiences as a pioneer of vegan meat. Seth is a wonderful man and I could have listened to him and talked to him for hours. He's a heart of gold and is honestly one of the most compassionate people you've ever met. You're going to love this episode. I really did too. Please don't forget to comment, like and share. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the show, Seth. Great to be here, Robbie. I appreciate you having me on. It's my absolute pleasure. I've been obviously uh, consuming your products and uh, being a, a kind of avid uh, love of, of everything that you've been doing over the last few years. We've crossed paths a few times at some of the conferences, but never really had an opportunity to uh, to talk. So I'm really glad to sit down with you and have this conversation. Yeah, likewise. I was supposed to be in London today um, for the natural product show out at Excel, but uh, not to be right now. So here I am. <laughs> yeah. So for those listening to this in the future, we're uh, in the midst of a pandemic, unfortunately, which has really ground the entire planet to a halt and uh, put a lot of people's travel plans and lives on hold. But we'll get into that and talk about that kind of stuff a little bit later. My wife, they ask her a lot of times, they say, did he make you sign a prenup before you got married? And she scoffs and she goes, prenup? He lived in a tree. Before we talk about all the incredible things that you've done with your life and the things that you're doing now, let's go back in time and uh, tell us your plant-based or vegan story. How did it all begin for you? Yeah, so when I grew up pretty much on a standard meat-based diet um, as a child, and then when I went to college in Ohio in 1971, I had read this book called Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LaPay who was really the first person to point out in a big way the inefficiency of feeding uh, grains and food through animals that, you know, you'd feed an animal like 16 pounds of grain and you'd get like one pound of protein back. And it just didn't make any sense as opposed to eating the grain directly. So with that in mind, I became a vegetarian. Now, mind you, in 1971, there was no real information available on the health aspects of a vegan vegetarian diet. There was no real 
information on how animals were treated in these factory farms. So the environmental piece was really the way that I came into this on, and I wanted to eat lower on the food chain. That was my goal. So I started eating vegetarian, not vegan at that time, uh, but I was a terrible vegetarian. I mean, I was eating cookies and cheese. Uh, I was eating no meat, but I was eating a very poor diet. But later on, uh, a year or two later, I started reading the writings of one Stephen Gaskin, who was a sort of hippie guru at the time from San Francisco. And he traveled all across the country and actually founded a community in rural Tennessee called The Farm. And he had 1,600 acres, and they were growing a lot of soybeans there, among other uh, vegetables and grains. And he had 1,200 hippies living on this farm. I mean, they're all long hair and tie-dye and everything, but they were all what were called, at the time, pure vegetarians. Now, I know you Brits, uh, it was Watson had invented the term vegan in the 1940s, but over here in the 1970s, it was not in the language uh, uh, that you spoke. So you were either a vegetarian, which meant you ate cheese and eggs, and or you were a pure vegetarian, which meant you ate beans and grains and no dairy products. So I visited the farm, and one of the things that, I, that struck me in reading their literature, even before I went to the farm, was that there was this great cookbook that they had produced called the Farm Vegetarian Cookbook, which was how to be a pure vegetarian. And one of the recipes in there that I was eating was these burgers made out of soy grits. I don't know if you've ever heard of soy grits. Yeah, could you explain what grits are? Because I've, I've heard that term uh, before in America, but I don't actually know what it means. Yeah, well, it's just ground up grain, basically. And, and so soy grits were just soybeans that had been taken and they'd been chopped up into small little pieces uh, in a mill. And then I would combine them with like flour to hold it together and some spices. And then I would just fry them up in a pan. And that was my one of my staples was these soy grits. And the thing about the soy grit burgers is they really didn't taste that good, but they digested worse. <laughs> I mean, it was really a struggle to uh, be like a pure vegetarian there because you didn't have anything in the store, you know, that you could go to and buy, you know, there was no uh, even tofu or tempeh uh, or meat alternatives. So I was eating these indigestible burgers. And I read about tempeh and they were talking about this food that was from Indonesia and it's a fermented food. And everybody loved it on the farm, they were saying. People would ask for seconds. And I thought everybody's a big number of people <laughs> there. Could it really be that good? And they also talked about how digestible it was. I was going, hmm, a plant-based food that is delicious and easy to digest. There's a concept. And so I had a job one summer as a naturalist in Tennessee near the farm. And uh, one weekend I had off, I drove over there and got some of the magic tempeh starter and went over to my tent, which I was living in. And the next weekend I made some tempeh. 
tempeh needs to be incubated after you cook the beans and you split the beans and then you put the starter culture on and you incubate them overnight at right around 32 degrees Celsius, uh, which is about 88 degrees Fahrenheit. And the mold grows and it binds the beans together into this wonderful mushroomy smelling cake that has a great taste and texture. And lo and behold, after 24 hours of sitting out in a field in a pan, this mold had grown and I was very excited and ran into the kitchen tent and I staff had been sitting there drinking beer all afternoon and so their defenses were down and they looked at me like I was crazy to eat this moldy soybean cake but we ate it and with some sweet corn and okra and big slices of tomato and oh my god it was just the most delicious meal I had ever had that was plant-based and so I was smitten from the get-go. So that's really how I came into veganism and vegetarianism and to tempeh, which was to be my North Star that I guided by for 50 years after that. You know, the Tofurky story is the story of working very hard and living on very little. I slept right up there and just trying to be less stupid week by week, month by month, year by year. My family was the farthest thing from vegetarian, really. My brother and I had this concoction called hamburger pizza. And instead of a crust, we used ground meat when I went to college in 1971, I had this amazing meal of lentils, rice, and onions. And it was the first real vegetarian meal that a friend had cooked for me. And I became a vegetarian overnight. Well, we're pulling up to the old Hewson School, which is now the fire hall. Without knowing anything about business, I started Turtle Island Foods. This was the whole production floor. I was really excited about this and I went over to my aunt's house and she said, Seth, look at me. This is a meat-eating country and this is a terrible idea. Right in here was the incubation room. I was so dumb about business, I thought that the world would beat a path to my door. And with regards kind of the, the, the differentiator between, you know, eating a plant-based diet and then the animal aspect of it as well, how much did that feature in the early days for you? Um, you know, because the animal rights movement and the animal welfare movement has, is shaped and shifted and changed dramatically over the last few decades. Um, what was it like back then with regards um, the animal aspect? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, back then in the 1970s, there really was no information. I mean, in the U.S., you had the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which was mainly concerned with companion animals and um, not really, you know, farm animals. In fact, a book that I had read that was pretty indicative of the attitudes of the time was this book called Living Lightly. And I remember very well that one of the points that they made in the book, they were like, well, you shouldn't eat meat, but you can eat like cheese and milk and eggs and stuff because these are products that animals give to us painlessly. 
and that was really you know the the common attitude back then although as we know now that is not really the truth so it wasn't until 1980 you know when i started my business uh, it was the first animal rights business or organization itself was PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, was founded the same year that I started making my tempeh commercially, which was 1980. So there really was a long way to go in the consciousness of the world and certainly America about uh, the horrid way that farm animals were being treated. And and with regards to the kind of people around you, how and what kind of kept you moving in the direction you were? Because I know for a lot of people, the social pressures of staying uh, the cause and eating in this way can be very difficult, especially in a culture like America, where meat is such a big part of the diet. Uh, you know, the standard American diet is very heavy in, in meat and animal products and cheese. And like, what was it around you that sort of kept you, kept you moving in that direction? Well, you know, I mean, I had some support of a really good support system from my friends who at that time, you know, I was working as a naturalist and I'd work at these camps and the staff were often all vegetarian too. So, you know, the cook would be making special meals for us, you know, at home, I would make tempeh and I'd have people over and they'd love it. And so I had a nice support system, but, you know, when I would go like on holidays to people's houses, like relatives, like I remember in 1980, two weeks after I had sent in my registration to the Oregon State Business Registry. I went to Minnesota and for Christmas to visit my aunt who lived out there in St. Paul, Minnesota. I was so excited and I sat down one night over some of her delicious apple pie and I told her all about my exciting plans to make tempeh and to bring this product, you know, to the world because I said, you know, my friends and I, we eat this and we love it. And so I'm going to go into business making it. And then she stopped me right there and she said, Seth, Seth, look at me, look at me. This is a very bad idea. This (laughs) is a meat eating country and it's always going to be a meat eating country. Nobody wants to eat soybeans, let alone moldy soybeans. Get a hold of yourself. And, you know, (laughs) so that was a little rough. But I believed in the product and I thought that that was a little extreme of her to try and squash my dreams, you know, right when they're the most tender. Because right then I was trying to psych myself up to devote a good part of my life and all the money I had, which wasn't much, into this business. So sometimes, you know, I think that doubt has ruined more businesses than economics or any other factors, you know, you you really have to have right at the beginning, you got to have a vision and you got to stick to it. And sometimes, you know, when people say it's a bad idea, it might actually be a good thing because there aren't too many other people that are going to have that crazy idea. But it was really just the idea of wanting to eat as I called it, lower on the food chain that was driving me at that point. It wasn't diet. It wasn't 
the animal piece. It was more the environmental piece. Because I reasoned if you had a more efficient way of making protein and feeding it right to people, there'd be more protein to go around for the world's hunger problems, but it would also be less pressure on the habitat. So it would create more wildlife habitat for the birds and the animals that I love so much as a naturalist. So obviously, you know, you created your company, Turtle Island Foods, quite soon after all of this in 1980, right? So how did you kind of come to that? Was there any kind of a period before where you were involved in anything similar that kind of gave you the training and the skills that you needed? Or did you just sort of dive straight in? Yes and no. I had, when I, after 1977, when I came back from Tennessee, where I had made my first tempeh, I started making little batches of tempeh at home for friends and family. And so I learned a little bit more how to make it, although I hadn't scaled it up yet. And I moved out to a retreat center and I was living in a teepee at that time and then a barn. And then I started making uh, batches of tempeh in an old refrigerator that I strung Christmas tree lights in for heat. That's how I made I could make five pounds. That was my first attempt at scaling up from my one-pound batches to five or ten-pound batches that I would make. And the retreat center was, you know, they would have people come out on the weekends, and they'd feed them tempeh. And people generally gave really positive feedback to it. So in 1980, when Ronald Reagan came into the presidency, he was not a real environmental kind of guy, to say the least. So a lot of my environmental jobs that had relied on federal funding soon uh, dried up and there was nothing left for me to do. So I was like, hmm, maybe I should go into business. I knew nothing about business. I, I just jumped in because in college, I had never taken any business classes or anything. And I really didn't know. I mean, I was pretty stupid, really, to be honest, about the ways of business. And I went to the local food co-op where I shopped, and I asked them if they would rent me their kitchen, which they weren't using at night. They were only using it in the day to make sandwiches and stuff. And they said, yeah, you can have the kitchen from four in the afternoon until seven in the morning, and you can make your tempeh right there for $25 a month. So they rented me this nice little kitchen for 25 bucks a month. And I just started making tempeh. I knew so little about business. I just thought, I love this tempeh so much. As soon as the world tastes this tempeh, the world is going to beat a path to my door. I'm not going to have to sell it or market it or anything like that. You know, I didn't leave any money for that. So I was selling these cakes of tempeh for 74 cents each uh, for a little 227 gram cake. And I would drive it around Portland to about eight or nine natural food stores and restaurants. And I would be selling it there. I, I, I had a old beat up station wagon that the driver's side, it had been in a crash, which is why I could bought it for $350. And the whole driver's side door was missing. So it was like a Jeep just driving in. And I was so embarrassed. I'd drive and I'd park around the corner so that nobody in the store could see me. 
And I would bring my little tempeh cakes into the stores back then, which were not really showcases of modern retailing themselves at that point. They were, you know, old used refrigerator cases and warped wooden floors and dark lighting for the most part. But they did sell tofu and tempeh, which you couldn't get anywhere else, like in a supermarket. In some of the stores, like the the one that I was making the tempeh in, the way they sold tofu is they'd buy these big white buckets with like two dozen cakes of tofu swimming in water in it. And then they'd have the volunteers reach in there and take out a cake of tofu. And then they'd put it in a Chinese restaurant takeaway container and they'd put, put it on the shelf. So that was the packaging for tofu at that time. So not really colorful or eye appealing, but you could buy it in those stores. So that was really how I got my my first start was just delivering around the stores in Portland, Oregon, which was about 20 miles from where I started um, making the tempeh. And when you decided to go big or go bigger and create yourself a, a company, what was the process behind that? Were, were friends and family or people around you pushing you and encouraging you? Or did you have you always really had that entrepreneurial spirit where you felt like you wanted to get your product out to more people? I had two goals. The mission was to bring, you know, low on the food chain, this exciting new product that was an efficient and delicious protein to the world. And then personally, my goal was I'd like to have, pay myself a salary of $1,000 a month, and which is what I thought I could live comfortably on. I had never made that much money because I was at that point, I had lived on like 200 or $300 a month. So I could only make 60 kilos of tempeh a night, 50 or 60 kilos a night. So I, I could make maybe in a week, I could make 100 or 200 kilos of tempeh. And then I got a call after I had been in business for only about six weeks from a, a wholesaler who said that they wanted to carry my tempeh and they're going to need a thousand kilos of this every week. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so much tempeh. How am I ever going to make that much tempeh? I started looking for a new place where I wouldn't have to work at night and I could make more tempeh and scale this up. And it took me about six months and I looked all around the Portland area and I could find nothing that I could afford because I was only pulling in about $800 a month in sales. So most of these places were out of my price range that were set up. And I looked and looked. And at, at that point, I, I had, after six months, I was about ready to give up because I said, this dream isn't going to scale because I can't find anything I can afford. I had some friends that lived up here where I live now in the town of Trout Lake, which is an hour and a half from Portland, Oregon. And as I was driving home, I stopped in a town that was about 10 miles south of here called Hewsome. And there was an old school building there that had been sitting vacant for seven years. And I stopped and I looked in the window and there was the perfect tempeh kitchen. It had stainless steel sinks. It had tile floors. It had drains in the floors. 
It even had a little storeroom, which I could make into an incubator. So I called up the school district and they were trying to sell the building, but nobody wanted to buy it because it's a very poor county where I live in. And it still is a very rural and not really uh, fancy place. There's only one traffic light in my whole county. <laughs> and wow. So that gives you some idea of how uh, rural it Sounds is. Sounds like my childhood. <laughs> yeah. So I went to the school board and they said, come and make a presentation. And I cooked up some tempeh. And this is 1981 when nobody knew what tempeh was, even in the health food stores. And here were some ranchers and farmers and very conservative school board members that I had to convince that tempeh was the new thing that they should back by renting me their school. And so I brought the tempeh in and I fed it to them. And there was mostly, uh, there was some delight and there was also some skeptical looks, but I could tell this one woman was really enjoying it. And the others were sort of like indifferent to it. That was the head of the school board asked me the question I'd been dreading. And he goes, if we were to rent you this school with a commercial kitchen, a gymnasium and four classrooms, 13,000 square feet, how much could you afford to pay us in rent? And I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And I said, how about if I pay you $150 a month rent? And they, the room just grew silent. And you could hear these squeaking of the chairs. It was uncomfortable. And I was looking all around. And then the woman that had been kind of enjoying the tempeh just breaks the silence. And she goes, I say we take it. What do we have to lose? <laughs> and and <laughs> she was so enthusiastic that everybody just caved in and they said, okay we'll give you this building. And it was great building, but there was no heat in the building and the water pipes had all frozen because nobody had been in there in seven years. So there was a lot of things that I needed to do, but with my pots, you know, that were heating the, cooking the beans, they would heat the kitchen fine and the incubator. I could always go in there to warm up because that was a pleasant 32 degrees. It was like Portugal, you know, like out on the beach. <laughs> and so, it was a really great space for me to, you know, I look back and without that, I don't know if I would have made it, but it was really a, a perfect incubator. And I stayed there in that little town for 10 years making tempeh, although never making a profit, although, you know, it was growing. But during the, the whole nine years, the first nine years of business, I only took home $31,000 in pay over nine years. So wow. that was How did you much. survive? How did you uh, pay your bills? And Well, uh, I didn't have very many bills. That was how I survived. A couple of things happened. One thing was the community was pretty happy to see the school back in action and somebody in there. And they would come and they'd go, hey, I'm going to have, I need a place to have my wedding or my party, or, or can we play basketball in your gym? And I go, oh, sure, just come in, you know, and I wasn't charging them anything. And I don't know if it was that, but one day I walked into the post office and the 
woman that ran the post office said, say, would you like to live in an apartment right above our house that we have that nobody, we can't find anybody to rent it. And I would go, oh, I sure would. But Bonnie, I'm, I'm not a man of means. I don't have much money. And she said, oh, we wouldn't charge you anything. We just want to have somebody in there. So I moved out of my trailer that um, I was living in and back of the school. I had this small little camping trailer that smelled like mouse urine. And <laughs> I moved in. I was taking cold showers in the school because there was no hot water in the bathrooms. But I had a heated apartment with a bathroom and warm showers. So I lived in there for a year. And then they, the economy improved. So they found somebody to rent it. But a friend of mine said I could rent four trees on her land and build a tree house if I wanted to. And so that's what I did is I spent about $2,000 over time and I built a three-story tree house with a stove and running water. And it was a great space and that only cost me $25 a month. So that was- Wow, that's incredible. My $300 a month salary, but- Sounds like you had a lot of guardian angels along the way. (laughs) Well, that's true. You know, I did. There was a lot of generous people uh, that is the reason why Tofurky actually came about in the way that my business came. And sometimes I think the country, you know, I was not in the city. I think being in the country, people are all just kind of getting by themselves. So when they see somebody that's struggling to get by, uh, and especially entrepreneurs, I think sometimes it warms people's heart and people are generous and they want to support somebody taking a risk. So as much as business is a dog eat dog world, I don't even think dogs eat dogs, do they? But <laughs> they uh, I, think, I think the thing is, is that people appreciate the fact that there's, especially as someone as tenacious as yourself is, is doing something a little bit different. I think when people meet someone who's doing something they've never seen before or heard of before i think a lot of people are curious because humans are naturally curious creatures i think but you worked so hard and you and you pushed on for so long i mean i was reading that you didn't turn a profit until the turn uh well until the until the millennium really which was quite some time for you um how did you manage to sort of keep going for so long was it just the love of of the product what was it that kind of kept you going every day yeah i think that it was you know the the love of the product and and you know even though i wasn't making money personally more than just about 300 a month the vision and the the mission was still intact you know of i'm going to bring tempeh to america and these low on the food chain were um products so i think that you know and that's one of the superpowers that i see in all vegan companies right now is that they all have missions. I have yet to really see a, a vegan company that didn't have some kind of mission to it. You know, there's everything from the small little tempeh maker with a stand at the farmer's market all the way up to these big corn and Beyond Meat and these huge brands now. Those guys, they they also have more than a money mission. You know, they, they want to see the world be in a better place. And and that was kind of the sense 
along with just the idea that I'm in rural, I have built this life in this rural town and I don't have any skills other than this one little skill. I'm a one trick pony. <laughs> like what else can I do? I mean, really having, having to make this happen. I didn't have a plan B like, so I had to be committed to plan a for one thing. And uh, you know, I've seen, some businesses, like there was this guy I know that had a vegan cheese company, and he was one of the first vegan cheese companies. He was doing cashew cheese, and it was an amazing product, but he had another source of income, so it, it didn't have to work. And so he would make cheese for a while, and then he'd go off to Japan or wherever for a while. And uh, I think that in my case, it worked because it had to work. There really wasn't. Uh, an alternative. And what was the breakthrough? What was the breakthrough moment for you? Because obviously, you know, looking back, things were very different to what they were compared to what they are now. You're an internationally um, recognized brand. What did you do? Was there a point where you you suddenly realized that you had made that shift or pushed through those boundaries or those those limits that you that you had um, been experiencing? Well, yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, in the early 1990s, I was really kind of fed up with the dream, even though it was still a little bit happening. I, I, I was looking for a way out. And I thought about writing a book on tree houses and maybe being an author or something like that. But that sort of fell apart. And then I started to seriously look at the business and I started to realize that, you know, the tempeh was a newer kind of product that really people hadn't fully understood yet. You know, it takes time for a new product to blaze away into the country. And tofu at that time, tofu came to America in the early 1900s. And in Portland, there's a tofu shop, Oda Tofu, that is, I think, the first commercial tofu shop in Portland, I mean, in the U.S. And it was built in 1905, and so tofu had been in this country a long time, but tempeh, the first tempeh shop in this country was 1976. So it was just four years before I started. So I had the idea of pivoting into tofu, like keep making tempeh because I still believe in it, but pivot towards tofu. And we were experimenting a little bit with these tofu pies that were delicious that my wife had made. But we didn't launch them because they had too much fat, and fat was like the the bad, evil thing that <laughs> nobody wanted at that time. So we said we can't do this. And then one day I was I had always been fascinated with the Thanksgiving holiday over here because that was a food day, and everybody was sit down together and they talk about food, and there was really no food for anybody that was not eating turkey. And so I had thought of and messed around on my own with some pretty awful products like uh, a gluten roast that you couldn't cut with a chainsaw. And uh, <laughs> I had a stuffed pumpkin that collapsed. Is, and, that glute, is that gluten as in Satan? Yes, it was a Satan. Right. But, but this was even before you could buy the vital wheat gluten. Like... The seitan is just the wheat protein, so you separate the starch, and they do that all mechanically now, and so you can buy it. But back then, you had to like knead this wheat under water for like 
eight hours to just wow. get the starch <laughs> off and you were rinsing it. And then, you know, we baked it and, oh my God, I still get kidded about that. <laughs> Rose, how awful it was. So it was harder to do back then. But anyways, I, I went in to deliver some tempeh into Portland and my friend Hans was making this stuffed tofu roast one day when I dropped off a tempeh and I was like, oh, I need to buy one. And so I bought one. He was selling about 25 or 50 of these roasts for $50. They were five pound roasts, two kilo roasts, and they had stuffing and a little gravy and they were really good when he was selling them refrigerated. But I said, let's freeze these and I'm going to make tempeh drumsticks because I had this recipe that we were working on for a burger and it tasted like Thanksgiving. So we just stamped them out into the shape of a drum at, we called them. And we had eight tempeh drumettes and we had a tub of gravy and we had this big tofu roast, stuffed tofu roast. And against the advice of many wizened friends and industry people, I decided let's name it Tofurky. And the Tofurky inside the factory where they turn soybeans into a vegetarian's Thanksgiving dream. Welcome back. Our next guest say you'll never know the difference between turkey and Tofurky. Tofurky became a real turning point for plant-based foods. It broke into the public consciousness in a way that no plant-based foods had ever gone before. This could be Tofurky. Is this Tofurky? Sitcoms were talking about it. It was just like, and every time there was somebody even laughing about it, the brand just grew bigger and bigger. I'm beginning to realize what a fluke it kind of was. I didn't plan to be a businessman, and it was sort of a surprise to suddenly be profitable. And, you know, it was really just using common sense and some business sense and trying to be less stupid all of the time. Maybe I am the cosmic goof, but voila, here we are. <laughs> it's a great name. It's, it's iconic, that's for sure. Oh, it is. But back then, people were like, that sounds like a sneeze or, I don't know, it's too funny. It's like, this is serious business. But I had been trying to be serious businessman for 15 years at that point. And I was like, this isn't working. Why don't we try something fun? Because people like jokes. And, you know, when you share a laugh with somebody, it sort of brings everybody together and takes away the pretentiousness of these foods. And so anyways, we gave it a go. And I love the sound of that. You took, rather than sort of creating and being what the world expected you to be, you you decided to put all that aside and, and inject your own fun, creative personality into what you were doing. Would you say well, that was one of the sort of defining moments really for yourself? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, because I was going so far as when I'd go to these trade shows back before Tofurky, I was wearing ties and suits, and that was so not me. It was it was like you could just see how awkward it was, and it just didn't fit. And after Tofurky, I was like, I'm not ever wearing a tie again. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it was Amazing. really, you know, being like authentic and just uh, playful, which is 
sort of my natural personality flaw or or trait. I, I so. can I can attest I can attest to your colorful attire. I've seen you at many a uh, many an event with a with brightly colored clothes, which is which is wonderful. I certainly can sympathize with that kind of change in a person because when I first came to London, I was very brightly colored and wore lots of reds and yellows and all kinds of colors and then kind of got sucked into the void that is city life that is metropolitan life and ended up wearing blacks and grays and becoming very subdued and in my in my 40s I've now realized that I don't need to adhere to what what the world expects me to adhere and and I need to um, remember that you know uh, our own personality and our own identity is what makes us unique. It is what gives us our our special place in this world, and that's what people want to see. They don't want to see just a, another businessman wearing just another tie. They want us to see personality. They want to see individuality. So I think you know it's really wonderful that you you came to that and and uh, you know you were, you allowed yourself to express your individuality, and obviously that shines through in all your products and the way they are. You know we get them here in the UK, and the and the packaging's bright and colorful and it really stands out on the the shelf i remember when i first saw the tofurkey sandwiches i was so excited um and i would literally ate them when i was in the in the city i was literally eating them every day <laughs> because you know it's so great to be able to have a convenience food that's easy and it's ready made and it's delicious because we have even up until recently we've not really had that in the uk you can get you know your 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 average salad or your baked potato but there was never anything that kind of mimicked the taste uh, and, and texture of meat, which you know I loved, and I, I grew up on a farm. Um, I used to eat steak for breakfast. You know, I was a real meat meat eater. Being able to sort of eat products like tofurkey, because you guys have got so many things, you've developed so many different products and slices, and the tofurkey roasts and sandwiches, just such a great pleasure. So thank you for for creating it. I must have to say that. <laughs> oh yeah, well. You know, thank you for that. And you're you're right. I think they did a great job on the packaging of the sandwiches. And I I love the the whole UK growth in just you know vegan products right now. It's it's breathtaking for me to see you know everything that you guys go. And I'm, when I first started coming to the UK in 2013 to sell tofurkey, you you talk to people, and the common thought was. Oh yeah, we're three or four years behind the U.S. over here, and now I think we're three or four years behind the U.K. I mean, London has the most vegan restaurants of any city in the world now, and growing, and and just your whole consciousness, I think, is is wonderful. I think Veganuary has been brilliant, uh, of which I'm a trustee of. I'm their lone U.S. trustee, so we're trying to get that going over here, but. It is great to see um, what's happening in the UK, and I just applaud all the efforts that all of you are doing over there, and uh, I hope that it virally spreads out beyond the UK to everywhere, and I think that is exactly what's happening, but you guys are just phenomenal right now. Thank you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure and it's an exciting time. Obviously, with this pandemic that's currently gripping the world, it's unfortunately put everything on hold and a lot of small businesses and restaurants have had to shut down. We've unfortunately lost quite a few restaurants in London, 
but um, I'm hoping that when when the social distancing uh, laws have been not laws, but uh, restrictions have been lifted, um, and uh, we get this pandemic under control, people can get back into business. But regarding kind of going back to the the point of business, obviously, you know, a lot of people don't realize that your your business is actually is family owned, and you and you never took any shareholders. Is that right? Correct. How did that come about? It came about uh, initially. You know, I had the support. Like I couldn't get loans from the banks. I go to the banks and they would just laugh at me. But my my brother didn't have a lot of he, his family sense was higher than his business sense, and he loaned me money and I'd pay him back. So he helped until I could get loans from banks. And after Tofurky hit, you know, and we became profitable, we we just grew bit by bit. You know, it wasn't like astronomical growth which was in tune with the category then because the category was growing bit by bit. It wasn't like this jet stream that we see now of unbridled rampant growth. So I had also watched many small, passionate, wonderful vegan companies sell to corporations like in the nineties and in the early OOs. And it just seemed like Big corporations didn't know what to do with these products, and they just all ended up very badly. You know, the the founder got a bunch of money. You who who needs that kind of money? Crazy money. And then the business gradually declined, and it became a bad place for the people that worked there. And I just thought that it was better to just have control of the company than it was turning the control over to these people that didn't know what to do with it. And so we kept growing that way. And then we became very profitable, which was really a strange feeling after all these years. You know, my, I call it my 20 year overnight success story. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which obviously features very heavily in your book, which is up now called In Search of Wild Tofurky, How a Business Misfit pioneered plant-based foods before they were cool on the cover as a picture of you in a lovely blue plaid uh, top with a picture of you holding I think your tofurkey roast is that right that's correct yeah so the book it's mostly the story of all my failures and years of failing before getting to the tofurkey moment because this is kind of an in- uh, an outlier of a story I guess the fact that we haven't sold any of our equity which is really more common right now because there is this venture capital community that didn't exist in 1980 that really wasn't, and certainly there weren't people lined up to say, here's a million dollars to start up for your crazy tempe idea. And so I think people sometimes forget that there is another way of funding these businesses. You know, there's equity financing of selling that, but there's also debt financing, which is basically what we did. And that's another model, like we call it the bootstrapping model. So it's just food for thought as people start a business or a vegan business, and they're always looking at funding and how to grow. And it's sort of a a guide and a a lot of fun stories because it has been a fun life that I've led and I'm happy to share that. But I also want to just encourage, you know, vegan businesses. I love 
vegan startups and I love to work with them. You know, one of the my favorite vegan startups in the UK right now that I've been working with is the mouse's favorite cheese. Have you had that cheese? Oh, yes, I have. It's fantastic. Anyone who's listening, if you're in the UK, you have to get yourself some, get your paws on some mouse's favorite cheese. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I just finished this morning. They came over to attend the Natural Products Expo in Anaheim, California in March, which canceled two days before the show, but they came over anyways, and they brought me this lovely collection of their cheeses. And just this morning, I had my last bite of their Camembert cheese, and oh my gosh, I am so sad now. I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow morning because <laughs> it's so it's, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it, vegan cheese? Because I think over the, over the decades, vegan cheese has had a bit of a – a bad rap because I think a lot of people have tried to replicate the the look of a cheese block uh, using things like coconut oil and stuff like that. But they they never really thought about what it is about cheese that or dairy cheese or cow's cheese that gave it that delicious umami flavor and the creaminess in the texture. And that is the the cultured nature of it. And I'm I'm always sort of shocked and surprised by how many people who who say how they dislike vegan cheeses and they've never tried a cultured cheese product because ultimately that is what gives cheese its delicious creaminess, which is the fermented nature of it. I, I was always a, a lover of the bluer the cheese, the better. You know, the more tangy and saltier cheese. Mm. Yeah, and and I do miss that. I, I have a, I have a friend Joshua Catcher in New York who has a a delicious vegan cheese brand called Rind, I think it's called. Um, And they've actually managed to perfect a blue cheese, a a proper blue vegan cheese. I haven't quite had an opportunity to taste it yet. Apparently his uh, waiting list is is quite extensive. So (laughs) if if you're in New York, get on on Joshua's uh, waiting list. (laughs) The first vegan cheese that I saw was really right around 1990s, the early 1990s. And it was really tough to eat (laughs) i mean the big joke we used to say around then was did you hear about the fire in the vegan cheese factory cheese still didn't melt the next day it was perfect (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can i can mention a few i won't mention a few brands that are like that here in the uk It's, it's more it's more around the imitation and this let's go back to the sort of like faux meats faux cheese conversation now obviously i can imagine over the over the decades and over the years people have had this question they said to you they would have said to you why do you want to replicate the taste and texture of meat you know we've got beans and legumes and lentils you know why why do we want to create something that looks like meat and smells like meat what do you say to those people well you know i mean just you look at my case why did i stop eating meat well it wasn't anything to do with the taste or texture of meat i was fine with the taste or texture of it i just didn't like you know all the other things that went along with it you know like i said first the horrible environmental footprint of eating meat which we now understand is even worse than what francis moore lapay made it out to be also then you you know you, you do look at the health aspects of eating meat and you look at the compassionate way that animals should be treated. So there's those three reasons are the main reasons why people start eating plant-based. It is what's it going to do for me and my health? What's it going to do for the planet? And what's it going to do, you know, for the animals? And it's not in 
necessary. It's all different orders for different people, but it is, is rarely, you know, about the taste and the texture of meat. You, you know, you rarely run into people that say, ah, I stopped eating meat because it didn't taste good. So taste, you know, is, is really king. And that's why I think that the taste and the texture now of all the vegan products has grown so much, even in the last three or four years, that it's a lot easier now for people that have been eating animal-based meats for so long to, to go the plant-based way on meat. You know, we say taste is king, price is queen, everything else is marketing. So it's got to taste great and it's got to have great texture. Texture, I guess, is a prince or something in there, but it's really an important and often the best. Uh, it's the hardest thing to replicate a lot of times, you know, I mean, flavor's tough, but getting the texture in there can be even tougher when you create those. But that's what I say, you know, it isn't really the taste or texture that people run away from meat from. It's all the horrible secondary parts or the of eating meat that are really driving people away from it. With a, with such a huge surge in popularity for plant-based foods uh, among mainstream consumers now, what uh, what does the next decade look like for Tofurky? Oh, I'm, I mean, there's never been a, a better time to be selling plant-based foods to the world, you know, and I, I do think that as the world is right now sheltered in place and press the pause button on their life, that there's a lot of thoughtful people that are connecting dots about like, how are we going to avoid more horrible pandemics that really impact our economy and our just movement and our lives so drastically. And I think that more and more people are going to be switching over to uh, the plant-based diets are going to come back even stronger. I mean, even right now during the pandemic, there's huge orders being placed for um, our products and other things. So um, we're really fortunate about that. So I think plant-based foods will come back stronger than ever, you know, and you know, you have to realize too, that even though plant-based meat alternatives are so crazy right now, you know, like in the supermarket channel in America, if a food, if a category grows 2% uh, over year to year, people go, wow, this is great because that's, that's the normal growth for like a supermarket. I'm not sure what it is in the UK, but I imagine it's similar. If they see a category growing 5%, they're like, oh my gosh, this is a hot category. I got to get more of this in. And that's how it was from like 2012 to 2017. And then it just took this hockey stick level up there to 20%, to 40%, to 50%. Last week, I got the the data from the uh, Nielsen company for the category. And you know what it was? 128% growth versus the first quarter of 2019 versus 2020. I mean, wow. it's just phenomenal, amazing to see. And I, I mean, I was just blown away. So that's really the, the issue now. It's not like, where are you going to sell this product, but how are you going to keep up with the demand? And so we've had to retool and make bigger and bigger batches so it's it's really a a challenge and i just see that getting more and more 
the case. And your factories are is is your factories quite well known for being very green and environmentally friendly. What are some of the things that you do to make sure your company and product is is greener than most? Yeah, you know, I mean, when we built this new plant, we started in 2011. We broke ground on it. We wanted it to be not just a place where you'd produce environmentally friendly foods, but uh, wanted to do it in the most environmentally friendly manner. So we put all the roof that we could, the space, we have over 400 solar panels up there, and we have rainwater collection where we collect and filter the water through UV filters for the gray water in the bathrooms and then also for the irrigation. We have 40% higher efficiency, energy efficiency than a normal building, the code of spec. So we've exceeded that. You know, we've made all of our cabinets out of old shipping pallets that still have some good wood in them. We've hauled logs out of the forest that fell in a campground that are burned and we've pulled them out of the Columbia River and sawed them up to make tables and desks and I'm really happy the way it comes out it's a beautiful building and people love you know working in it it's a great space very light big windows for bringing in sunlight for the floor and not just have fluorescent lights so it's an amazing building built to the lead platinum standards and and regarding your uh, your workforce and the people that that produce the product what are some of your top tips for keeping people motivated and kind of keeping that level of quality that you expect and and producing a product you're really really proud of how is the company able to sort of keep up with that well for one thing there's a designation called the b corp do you have b corps over there uh yes so plant-based news is actually in the process of becoming a b corp Oh, great. You know, so that's an important one, you know, because B Corps is a way like the LEED program in buildings, you know, it it quantifies just how good you are to your community, to your employees, and um, it's a social responsibility designation. And we're really proud of that because it makes you accountable for keeping the employee's best interest into the decision-making process and not just like, how can we make the most money? Um, So because of the B Corp, you know, it really holds everybody's feet to the fire and makes sure that, you know, you're treating people well, which in the pandemic, you know, it's been with changing landscape so quickly, you know, implementing measures in order to keep everybody safe uh, that's working there has been, particularly important challenging time because a lot of our workers will have somebody a partner at home that is maybe lost their job or is you know there's kids at home now because the schools are all out so we've moved up our review schedule for salaries from the summer to now so that people can a have more money and we've you know we're having bonuses right now so that we can make sure that our employees are economically taken care of as much as we can. And then just in the factory, you know, we had to implement social distancing, which is really hard. Uh, We had to reinvent all of our production lines because some of these production lines, you know, had two or three people in tight little clusters putting 
deli slices and packagings and stuff. So it's been an amazing challenge. But my stepson, Jamie, who's running the day-to-day as CEO, has been doing a fabulous job. You know, we, we have meetings like, uh, well, for a while it was daily, just because things were happening so fast and just trying to keep everybody uh, healthy and economically sound. I mean, that's that's a big project. It's a real challenge, but fantastic job you're doing. Coming to the end now, and thank you so much for sharing your story. It's uh, It's been a real pleasure. And, and uh, anyone who's interested in grabbing a copy of Seth's book, you can get it on Amazon or online bookstores. Any parting words? What would be your legacy be when you uh, when you leave this world? What's the what's the one thing that you would love to be remembered for? Well, you know, um, it's been really uh, an honor and a very meaningful life to have had this front row seat in what I think is one of the biggest social justice changes that the world has ever seen or attempted. You know, which is this movement away from animal-based proteins into plant-based proteins uh, and sustainable. So just being remembered for helping to push that ball forward a little bit is really, I think, the uh, big thing from a career sort of standpoint. And uh, yeah, I'm happy how the book came out. So that'll help tell that story. But I think we're just We've just begun right now. You know, we're we're still in the Wright Brothers stage of plant-based foods. And I think that we'll get to the moon sooner or later and uh, beyond. And I would say certainly in the next uh, 30 to 50 years, we're going to be seeing, I think it's very possible that we'll be maybe the, the dominant paradigm about how people eat will be plant-based, possibly even sooner. I'm Seth Tibbett, and I wrote In Search of the Wild Tofurkey to inspire other misfits to be less stupid and grow a business one month at a time, one mistake at a time. Before I let you go, I always love to ask my guests this one final question. Uh, If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, (laughs) obviously you don't eat the pig because you're you're a vegan and a pig's your friend. You've got at least... 20 years with a pig, I believe. I think that's how long they live, 20 20 years or so. If I could give you one vegan dish, one book, and one music album or a song, what would you take with you? Wow. Okay, vegan dish, it would definitely be tempeh. You know, when you eat tempeh, you just feel so good. On the book, I would say that it would be something like Eating Animals by Jonathan Saffron Fair, which I think is a brilliant book and could be reread. And in terms of, you said music was the last one? Yeah, what what music album would you take with you? I would take anything by John Prine, who just died recently, American folk singer to COVID. Uh, He was, I'd take any of his CDs or albums. Thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Seth. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Ravi. And uh, good luck to you over there, huh? Thank you. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie. This is the PBN podcast, and we'll be back next time with more plant-based news, food, fashion, nutrition, health, wellness, and everything in between.